Hello and welcome to Lunch Money. Uh, we are the online and social media home for special situations, workouts and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I'm the fund manager here at Hermes Capital and I'm your Lunch Money host. Uh, so a very, very warm welcome to you. Um, today, uh, the spotlight is going to be on business assets. There's a lot of talk about uh, of assets and asset bubbles and, and what have you at the moment. The reality is that on the balance sheet, business assets, uh, depending on how you look at it, uh, lock up cash. Um, and, and when a business is going through transition, whether it's growth or turnaround, uh, you know, reconstruction, formal, uh, formal reconstruction, or informal. Um, you know, it, it, the business assets obviously come into play, and there's a question of whether or not uh, you know they can they can be used to unlock some cash, uh, whether or not they should be redeployed, uh, retrenched for that matter, uh, replenished, renewed. Um, to, to as the business maybe changes strategy or needs to batten down the hedges and uh, to keep the ship afloat, uh, so to speak. There's a lot of talk of asset bubbles um, at the moment. We had uh, the RBA uh, governor saying that uh, he's not particularly bothered about asset bubbles. Um, but, you know, in a world of negligible interest rates, I said to someone this morning, no, the value of an asset is its income divided by the rate of return. If the rate of return is zero, then surely uh, the, closest, the closer the denominator gets to zero, then the closer to infinity asset prices become, uh, I would have thought, but uh, what would I know? But we know that it is having an implication, an impact on mergers and acquisitions, on IPOs and capital raising. Uh, what's the impact on uh, corporate restructuring? Uh, so they're some of the things we're going to talk about. But first, uh, I'd like you, as usual, to remind you to uh, share, like or subscribe. Uh, wherever you are watching us, if you're if you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. Uh, if you're uh, otherwise, you can listen to us on a podcast. If you're Apple or Spotify or Google, you can subscribe on all those platforms and uh, give us a like and give us a share. How about that? That way, we uh, we spread the, this this good information and we spread the word. We're now going to dive into uh, our first uh, our first um, part of the show, which is recipe of the week, and our um, our guest chef uh, this week is Ian Hyman, the uh, the CEO at Hyman's Valuers and Auctioneers. Welcome, guest chef. Thank you, Nicholas. What uh, before we get into your recipe, what's uh, what have you what's been keeping you busy this week? Well, we've had a frantic um, start to the year. Uh, pretty much a continuation of how the year finished in the sense that property development, property values are going nuts. Um, we work with a lot of non-bank lenders and they're out there at the moment uh, because most of the major banks have, uh, are not really in those spaces. Um, they're busy out. So uh, our, our property valuation team is, uh, is flat out. On the, the business valuation side, we're still seeing a lot of shareholder disputes. I think COVID has placed a lot of pressure on relationships, whether it be family relationships, just partnership-type relationships, and we've had an extraordinary surge in shareholder valuations, or sorry, share valuations that have been driven by disputes between existing shareholders. Um, so, look, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, asset prices are strong, um, and uh, business uh, cap rates on on business valuations have certainly dropped quite significantly, which means that you're obviously paying more to buy businesses. Having said that, small businesses are still quite um, quite challenging because they've got lots of risks that the large businesses don't have, such as key man, small numbers, you know, high concentration of of customers and so on, um, and that also has a quite a big dampening effect on those multiples, but still much stronger than it was 18 months ago before COVID. 
And uh, so, so your phone's ringing from, I guess, lawyers that, that bring these disputes to you. I've asked before on this show, you know, it's like marriage, you know, when the money goes, the love goes in some cases. Um, but uh, um, so, so, so but you, you found your phone's ringing a lot more, say, in the past couple of weeks than it was, say, in November, December last year? Yeah, I've got half, I've literally got half a dozen of those, um, literally of those situations running right now. You know, you've given us uh, seven tips for, uh, for for reviewing your assets, and uh, you know, as I said before, it, it can be an informal a, a situation where there's been no external advisors appointed, or it could be a formal situation. Uh, sorry, it could be a formal situation where there's an administrator, and it's not necessarily a turnaround situation. It could be a business growth situation. Um, and you've got seven tips, and we're going to uh, make those seven tips available to anybody who asks for them. I'm just going to hit on some of them. You started off with uh, looking at maintenance costs for equipment. Uh, from prior years with a view to replacing equipment that's experiencing regular downtime. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about that for, for a moment? Well, this is something, uh, I mean, obviously we do a lot of, a lot of our clients are um, unfortunately insolvent, um, but we also have a lot of solvent clients and we talk to them about asset management practices and, and all too often, particularly in mid-sized businesses, sort of turning over maybe 50, 60, 70 million dollars up to that level from quite small levels. They don't really have any sort of formal new process and when a major piece of equipment breaks down in there, whether it's a manufacturing process or even if it's a, a you know a, um, a mining services business of some sort, inevitably it leads to a, a downturn or breakdown of production or whatever that you know whatever they're producing. So one of the things that we've seen over time that is a great lead indicator of ongoing reliability of equipment is how much you spent on maintenance from the year before, and it's easy to lose that when you've got you know one P and L account for repairs and maintenance. You might have hundred pieces of machinery. So my, my recommendation literally is, you know, for, for the director to sit down with operations managers, you know, at the uh, beginning of the, each financial year and go, okay, let's go through the major the major costs. And, and uh, if there's any equipment there that is critical, that if, if it goes down, we're going to basically going to have to stop production. Let's get rid of it now. Let's plan for replacement so that um, we minimise that, that, that significant risk. Now, it kind of sounds obvious, but in your experience, is it something that's often overlooked? Uh, it's 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 as uh, rare as finding a, a, a decent asset register. Yeah. So all the companies that I'm we go complain about that. Of all the companies that we go into, with more than ten or fifteen percent have an accurate asset register, that would be a lot. So that's eighty-five percent plus of businesses do not uh, uh, really value their assets. They don't value the the role that assets play in their ongoing success. Now, um, you've also said uh, identify surplus equipment that might be sold to raise cash. It might include equipment that was per purchased for a specific contract or volume of work that has subsequently reduced. So, again, you'd like to think that people know when they look around their, their fleet or their factory floor what's working and what's not, but not necessarily. Um, that is, would be a very dangerous assumption. <laughs> again, uh, very frequently, I won't say this is all companies or, or at the same level of, of, of the issue with uh, asset registers, but the reality is that, that most companies do not look at assets that are no longer in use. Um, we had a, we had a matter last week, a uh, million dollar production line. Uh, it just the process just didn't work. It was stopped five years ago. Uh, it was probably worth um, if you'd sold it five years ago, 100, 150 thousand dollars. Five years later, it's probably worth twenty or thirty thousand dollars now. But more importantly, it's taking up two thousand square feet in the factory. Um, so it's all those hidden costs that you don't think about. You can't use that space. You can't use the cash, um, and it's just eating its head off, basically. Yeah. 
And are you seeing uh, are you seeing more people that maybe you know? There's a lot of talk of it being harder to raise capital. Obviously, I've, I've had you know multiple discussions of actually we're starting to see deals that that really shouldn't be coming to us. They normally go to banks, but it's just getting too hard to to put them through the banks. I mean, are you seeing people coming to you and, and selling stuff because they just can't raise money and they've had to go through you know have a look through the ship to see what needs to be tossed? Yeah, well, that's particularly relevant. Uh, in the property space, um, anything on the commercial, industrial, or even develop, and particularly in the development side, uh, the non-bank lending, and, and you've just seen this, Nick, too, in your own in your own dealings, um, the, the the number of lenders has increased exponentially over yeah. the last uh, eighteen months. We've seen a lot of new entrants into the marketplace, and they're writing big deals. They're doing thirty, forty million, in some case, lends on on property developments because the banks simply aren't interested. They they're just not in it. Not in the space, so uh, that'll continue. That because of the how cheap money is and the, how hard to get a return, obviously property is still seen as a reasonably safe way of of, of obtaining a return, uh, but also protecting your asset base. Look, you've got some other points here. I'll just quickly touch on and some finance brokers, if they're watching, would love to hear this. Uh, using existing equity and equipment to purchase additional equipment by releasing uh, or mortgaging unencumbered equipment. The other one here you've got is studying new technological gains that have been made in your industry. I guess once upon a time, well, back in the before times, people used to go to expos in Germany or America or wherever it was to try and see where the new technology was. What, what do they do these days? Well, I think a lot of it's uh, a lot of that's happening online. But but even going back to that point, I think Australia over the last sort of twenty to thirty years have become very slow adopters of new manufacturing technology, and there are obviously exceptions uh, to that. But I think generally speaking, when we walk into manufacturing businesses, they are not looking at current technology, and some of those, some of that technology, in particular, may lead to significant energy savings um, as opposed to increasing the speed of production or the output of the equipment. Um, but they're not looking holistically at how they can improve their bottom line um, by, by, uh, by innovations in technology. And there are significant innovations happening across every sector, probably more than ever, ever before. Um, but, it, but you've got to obviously find time to investigate it, make sure it's going to work for you, and then go through the implementation process, which is the implementation process, which is quite complex. Okay, now uh, you've also made the comment uh, about staff. Are your staff fully trained for the most efficient utilisation of your equipment? Assess yep. each team member's skills and build a training program for it. I mean, do you often find when you go in to value equipment or to do a review for whatever purpose that uh, there are that people just aren't trained up on it? Yeah, look, we don't often get to talk uh, in that way to um, employees of solvent companies, but we do talk to a lot of employees in insolvent companies. And often they complain about the fact that they've not been given appropriate training for the equipment that they're utilising. Uh, and look, we've seen that even whether it's in an office environment where you've got staff extensively using Excel, like the Excel spreadsheet, that have never actually had appropriate training to use Excel. They can't, you know, they can't do basic things such as basic formulas, etc. And it really holds back the job. But at a more complex end, if you're operating a piece of, uh, for example, uh, engineering machinery program, or CNC lathe or something, if you're not across all of the benefits of that machine, and, and they are significant in terms of what you can do, how many access you can use, and all the rest of it. It's, it's going to cost you. It, it, you simply will not be able to get the best out of that equipment. Uh, it's like buying a new car and not reading the manual. You know, no, no different. What we'll do, Ian, is we're going to uh, pop you back in the uh, waiting room and we'll bring on our next guest, uh, Marcus Derwin. G'day, Marcus. How are you? How are you? 
not too bad. So Marcus is a C-suite executive board director, uh, turnaround and transformation officer, and he's uh, also the managing director of R Cubed. What is it that, uh, that's been keeping you busy of late? Well, good point, Nick. Uh, I'd say the last three months I've been chasing my tail, um, and I'll, I'll caveat that. Um, I think we're currently in the, in the eye of the cyclone, um, and I think the analogy there is, you know, we came into this... Uh, Obviously, the front end of COVID uh, last February, March, uh, we've had the stimulus package. We've had a budget uh, since that time, which is uh, obviously sought to uh, stimulate the economy and ensure that we have uh, employment. Uh, but uh, that stimulus package is coming towards uh, uh, finale. Uh, it may be extended. It may be changed in some shape, matter or form. But the reality is, um, you know, we need to deal with the fact that uh, when that stimulus package subsides or ceases, uh, you know, we now need to stand on our own two feet. Interesting. I mean, you, you, you say that we're in the eye of the storm. I guess another another metaphor that's just popped into my head, uh, I'm doing a bit of Greek mythology at the moment. It's a little bit of that maybe we're in the land of the lotus eaters. You know, everybody, I, I, it sounds like you're having similar conversations, if I can read between the lines that I, I am. I mean, people aren't feeling the pressure um, to, to, to do something because of all the stimulus um, you know, I think the changes that need to be made to businesses are being postponed. Is that is that fair enough? Yeah, I think so. And it's a sector by sector, um, I think, uh, analysis uh, because clearly uh, consumer discretionary. Um, you know, hitting the lights out. Yeah. Um, you know, any of the retailers who have done a fantastic uh, job in terms of sales uh, margins, and obviously it's very early stage in terms of mid-year reporting now, uh, but we are seeing those profits flow through. Uh, we're having a few more, you know, esoteric discussions around, uh, you know, should they have taken that stimulus? Should they be returning that stimulus? But uh, on a positive note, uh, there are sales and uh, there is, you know, full employment uh, as it stands at the moment. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I, I saw there was one article, I can't remember who it was, I think it was one of the men's fashion uh, retailers where they had taken masses of stimulus and they're declaring masses of profits. But you know, there wasn't a caveat on the avail on the on, on the on the on the JobKeeper, for example. I mean, you either qualified or you didn't. Um, you know, there was no rule that said that you're not allowed to make profits along the way. So it's a bit of a tough one there. You know, absolutely. And look, you know, to be fair to the government, uh, you know, they they adopted the let's save them all, um, which was yeah. you know I think the right approach, and it certainly yeah. softened the landing. We only have to look at uh, what's happening uh, globally. Uh, in other markets, particularly, you know, the Americas and in Europe. Okay. Well, look, we'll bring back Ian, but I'll stay with you, Marcus, um, uh, just having a look at some of Ian's uh, tips here. One of them he's got to review equipment that's mission critical. Now, I'm thinking that at this stage, it's more than just uh, casting an eye over the assets. It's really looking at the business strategy overall, figuring, in, you know, what markets you want to stay in and what markets you want to be competitive in when you're looking uh, at those assets. So any, any thoughts on that? Well, well, I'll comment, I think, first and foremost, I think that's absolutely fundamental. Uh, I think, you know, an, a review of your business model um, in the context of the current market. I think we've seen, uh, you know, I think all of us, uh, you know, this is my fifth uh, cycle that I've lived through in 30 years around working around the globe. And uh, it's the same as others. It's different to others. Uh, and I think that's a challenge. I think we are in the throes of a technology revolution. Uh, that has been accelerated uh, by the, uh, the pandemic. I think that's, you know, we've done a good thing. I think fundamentally businesses are going to have to look in the mirror and say, you know, what are we doing today? What are our competitors doing? And what can we do well tomorrow? Because in three to five years' time, if you're not doing something now, you won't be around. 
And how you know you, you heard some of Ian's comments there. How often would you you know you, you get parachuted into uh, into situations? You know there might be different you know crisis or pre-crisis. I mean, how often do you walk around and, and think you know I'm not necessarily an expert on this industry, but they do seem to have a lot of stuff on the floor here in terms of P and E that's 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 lazy or they don't need. Is that is that something that's obvious to you, but not necessarily obvious to the management? Yeah, look, a valid comment, uh, and uh, you know Ian. Uh, as, as you know, we've seen uh, many of these situations, but uh, the first thing is, uh, you know, I look at the balance sheet and I, I wander around and literally, does that asset exist? Uh, in what shape is it? What's the replacement value? That has an impact on insurance coverage. Uh, and fundamentally, you know, there may be extraneous uh, assets that uh, can be turned into ready cash, uh, which will have an impact on your working capital requirements. Now, I guess as a turnaround professional, you're obviously, you know, I suppose first and foremost in your mind is that ready cash because you've, you know, there's no point. You're not going to make the the, the hockey stick forecast if you don't make that uh, valley of death uh, there. But, I mean, do, do you also, you know, is there a point where you also turn your mind to new technologies? Or is that part of the process? What other technologies are out there for achieving the same outcomes? I think you should always be looking for efficiency gains. Uh, you know, how, just because we did it that way doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way. Yeah. Uh, the culture that is, again, uh, you know, you can explore a, a range of options which will have impact on your workforce. It'll have an impact on your supply chain. It'll have an impact on your processes. So I think you should always be aware and open uh, and receptive. Uh, okay. Ian, any, uh, any reflections on, on Marcus's comments here just by way of wrapping up this segment? Well, obviously, you can't but agree. Um, the, the other thing I was going to say, just mention that, that um, we talked about assets laying around. It's not just the value that gets lost in the asset by the fact that it sits there. It is the, it is the, the on cost. If you look, for example, at a tower crane, if you've got no work for a tower crane and it has a 10-year uh, recertification process and it sits on the ground for three years during a recession or because you don't have a contract for it, it's not just the loss of value. It's not just the fact that you've got to sit in a yard or in a factory somewhere chewing up a heap of space. It's the fact that for your $100,000 recertification process, you've just lost 30% of the value of that. Uh, by virtue of the fact that it hasn't been operating for three years. So it, it's really important that it's a holistic review. It's not just about maintenance. It's not just about storage. It's not just about uh, on you know um, costs that maybe five or six years away. It's about all of that, all of those things. And, um, you know, at the appropriate time, you know, you'll be able to buy that crane back probably for less than you paid for it in the right circumstances. Yeah, I mean, some assets, aircraft and underground mining equipment. I mean, there's all sorts of certifications and we haven't, we haven't even touched LH&S type risks. Let's, um, let's now move on to our next segment, which is takeaways. This is, uh, this is where we have a look at uh, some of the headlines of the week and uh, we just reflect on what we think about them. And the first one I've got here is uh, loans plan for virus hit businesses after JobKeeper. And they've floated this thing where uh, after JobKeeper runs out, the government is looking at introducing a HEX-style loan program um, so that uh, pandemic-affected businesses can borrow money to be repaid once turnover returns. Um, what, what, what are your thoughts on that, Ian? Um, I'm, not, I'm not positive, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Um, and partly, uh, I think, it sounds like a great concept, but the reality is unless somebody's going to vet that business in the first instance, look at the fundamentals uh, behind uh, why it's, it is, you know, it's in the position it's in and the likelihood of success uh, in the future, I think it's just the government that will be throwing good money after bad. Uh, so I would say it's, it's simply not, um, it simply will not uh, work in the long term. 
That's interesting, Marcus. I, I suppose actually Ian, Ian makes a point. I mean, really, this is the, the government getting into the business of making cash flow loans to small business. Um, you know, I suppose they could set up special agencies to do that. But do you think that's, what are your thoughts on that? Is that something the government should necessarily be doing? Well, I think there is no, there's no shortage of, uh, of capital uh, running around the markets, uh, both from the top end to the middle uh, tier. I think the sources of that capital addresses most stages of a business maturity life cycle. Uh, we've seen a tremendous input in terms of debt and credit funds over the course of the last sort of five, 10 years uh, since the GFC. Um, I would have to question, um, you know, again, their the rationale for that. Uh, and as Ian has uh, you know, pointed out, you know, credit and risk analysis has to be overlaid there uh, to have an understanding. It's one thing to put a dollar out. The reality is you need to get your dollar back and make a, a reasonable return for the risk associated. You know, you make a very good point. I mean, it's interesting. I saw uh, one deal in particular just between Christmas and New Year. It hit my desk and someone had accessed this, this uh, $200,000 or $250,000 from the Queensland government. They had a scheme. I think it was no interest for two years or is 2% after that. But on top of that, they had, you know, three or $400,000 from EFIC, which is another government agency. And then on top of that, of course, they had their bank and fintechs. And I'm just wondering, is anybody looking at the overall debt load? Because you had this sort of stacking of debt type situation and it does make it very difficult to, to climb over. Yeah, I mean, look, it'd be interesting to see if they if they bring that bring that in. All right, look, let's get on to our next, uh, our next headline. Um, there was a whole lot of articles uh, floating around in the papers this week. Uh, uh, asset bubbles, no worry for low, uh, where our, our, our um, Governor of the Reserve Bank seems to be quite relaxed about the asset bubbles. Wages is why the RBA will keep rates low. This is where you know, the, the RBA is saying, well, wages growth is going to be anemic. Uh, going forward, and so that's why rates will probably stay low. Uh, with recovery on track, RBA boss sees no bubble, bu uh, no bubble, bubble toil and trouble. A bit of Shakespeare there. Um, and you know what, what's going on? I mean, what do you see this reflected in 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 the auctions and uh, that, that you get involved in? I mean, I, well, I mean, I was saying a bit earlier that you know that one way to value assets is to look at the income stream and divide it by the rate of return. And as the rate of return tends towards zero, then the asset values theoretically tends towards infinity. Uh, are you seeing that? Well, I think it's just an extraordinary reflection by the Reserve Bank Governor. I uh, uh, have to be honest, I'm not a massive fan of some of the uh, Reserve Bank strategies, and this is this is one that I think is going to end badly. It may be four or five years away before that happens, uh, but I think the, you know, the ref refusal to recognise that we are approaching unsustainable asset price levels um, is extraordinary. I, I, um, I, I just don't, I don't, don't know. It doesn't register to me. So I, I think it's it's dangerous. Um, and I think the fact there's no wage growth, uh, there are so many other influences in the market other than wages, uh, you know, asset prices. Um, all we've done, all we've done over the last two years, is effectively novel a lot of self-funded retirees uh, who have gone from having a reasonably comfortable lifestyle to literally having to go into the age pension. And, um, and I think we've got to look at holistically uh, from the government's point of view, they've got to have a look at the impact on pensions um, and, and the impact of, of these asset bubbles because it's going to have, a, I think, a, a, systemic, uh, a systemic effect which is, is going to be very negative. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I wonder how many uh, SMSFs are turning into risk takers. Uh, but look, we'll, we'll leave that question aside. I know earlier in the week, Marcus, when, when we were talking about, uh, you know, doing the show, you, you had some concerns around uh, around asset bubbles and inflation and uh, all the free money sloshing about the place. 
Yeah, look, I, I think, again, uh, you know, history is a good guideline uh, for where we are and where we're going. Uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen what happened in Japan with zero interest through the 90s, uh, and, and it didn't move in terms of asset prices. Uh, there's a concern that, uh, you know, the, the government, well, sorry, the Fed uh, with uh, zero interest rates through the balance of the next decade uh, has not too many levers to play with. Uh, if you're borrowing and gearing up at, you know, 1%, you only have to go to 2% interest and you've doubled your interest. Uh, how are you going to service that interest and or repay that principal? So there's a few questions to be made. I think it's important. Uh, interestingly, they talked in that article around wages at about 1, 1.2%, and they're saying that uh, pricing and uh, inflation is running at 1.5. Now, that's all great um, when you've got mm -hmm. a job, but if unemployment moves from seven and starts norming up to double digit over the course of the next one to two years, um, you know, we've got another, uh, another equation that needs to be resolved. And how, how does, uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit in, in a moment, we'll talk about how this is impacting M&As and IPOs and, and, and that sort of stuff. But how does it impact, do you think, on corporate restructuring? I mean, apart from the fact that this just seems to put everything into a coma, um, how, how do you think it affects corporate restructuring? I am mean, just going to say that, uh, you know, corporate restructuring, I, I think we're seeing a, a um, Basically, if a business has got a pulse at the moment, if it's got a revenue line, it can be sold. And it may not be for a lot. It may be to take over the employer liabilities. But I think there's there's a lot of scenarios over the last sort of three to four months in particular where businesses that might have uh, closed have gone through a sale process and basically the shell's left. Um, at some point, the ATO will issue a wind-up notice. It tends to be the, the largest creditor. Um, but in the meantime, UCO, or not UCO, another company, an independent company often, has, has bought those, has bought the revenue line, bought some of the assets um, and uh, has uh, plugged on that onto their business. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that. You, know, you, know, you look at some, you look at some uh, businesses that are top revenue line um, based from, from a sales point. You look at things like real estate agents, uh, rent rolls, insurance brokers, um, businesses, uh, even accountants, uh, professional fees. They're calculating on, on, on top-line revenue. That's how you calculate their sales. Now, they haven't moved massively, but in the, if you go below that line into the traditional business sense, I think there has been significant, um, significant uh, drop in yields and therefore obviously increased prices. So if you've got a business with a revenue line, even if it's relatively small, um, if, it's, if they're good quality clients, you can generally find a sale for that business. So, Marcus, uh, I mean, Ian's basically saying there that the way it's impacting the, the corporate restructuring is just that, it, you know, the, the businesses are being sold for, for, for their revenues, I, I guess. Is, is, that what, is that what you think or is there any other impact? Yeah, look, in interesting, Nick, and we've seen this over the last nearly 12 months. I mean, the dislocation between markets uh, and performance, uh, the economy. So that, that goal seems to be getting wider. I'm not sure how, how we actually bring it back, uh, but the, the reality of it, uh, is, is along the lines that um, we need to think about uh, how um, the businesses are being viewed. Uh, fundamentalists seem to have fallen away. Uh, what we're tending to find now is it's around sales growth. It's about customer acquisition. And I think the reality um, in the current market amidst this technology revolution or evolution is how markets are viewing it. If you only have to look at uh, probably the last six months of the IPO performance uh, and really the bulls has always been a viable and um, more sensible um, exit strategy than a, than a trade sale. Yeah, I must say, look, across the, across the way here, I've got Hans Automotive Services. They're, they're a fine bunch of, uh, of motor mechanics. But I've got a feeling that I could IPO those guys, uh, the, the way the market is. But, but look, that, um, that, that brings me to our next uh, set of headlines.
uh, RBAs, low rates will boost M&A. Uh, ultra low rates fueling acquisition hunts, RBA to set off raging bull markets. Um, so, Marcus, you know, I, I know myself that we've seen that any any decent uh, M&As uh, are certainly very heavily uh, contested. Uh, the large funds, uh, I guess, you know, you, the, the world that you live in, you know, I'm sort of more in SME land, but you're sort of more in the, more in the corporate space. I guess it's the same thing. The big funds are cashed up and uh, they're all competing for these deals. Borrowing costs are very low. Look, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you've got a performing business, I think uh, you have the luxury of, uh, you know, picking your exit strategy and or your growth strategy. Uh, and I think there's a plethora of either, you know, debt or credit options available to you. Uh, I think, uh, you know, people are also looking at, uh, you know, partnering and strategic um, partners. I think that's, that's an important aspect uh, in terms of growing your business uh, moving forward. Uh, I think, the, um, the the takeout for everybody is really what does the what does it look like post the stimulus, uh, and I think where there's there'll be a degree of normality, and I think we have had some you know parties who've done very very well, and good luck to them. But there are some some sectors that have not done so well. So I think in terms of M and A activity, we're going to see more uh, opportunistic M and A, and that will be where a lot of the special situation funds. Uh, and some of the mid-market PE funds will be going to, you know, help, uh, you know, good businesses um, become better businesses. Do PE firms ring you uh, looking for opportunities or do they tend to ring you when they need to parachute someone in to, to clean up a mess or what's uh, how do you get engaged with those guys? A combination. Uh, you know, I, de I generally get calls on the basis of, of, of a burning platform uh, and or an underperformance right. issue uh, in, the, in the main. Uh, and in some instances, that means you need to fix the problem in the first instance uh, to enable you to basically get a better value for that business going forward, and in both and both a debt and or uh, equity opportunity, uh, and I think in that regard, um, some of the conversations that we were having sort of you know mid year last year uh, are fundamentally different to the ones I was having in December. Um, some of those businesses that were struggling uh, have done extremely well over the, the last few months. I think the challenge will be for the investment market is to work out, is, is that being, have they fixed the business fundamentally uh, or is there a Band-Aid solution and uh, they're trying to get a, a good valuation uh, on, on an exit? So do you think, I mean, you, you know, you said before, you know, eye of the storm. And mm -hmm. I, I think most people in our circles, you know, uh, don't believe that, that there's not some sort of economic event coming. We don't believe that the, the real recession has been. I mean, we could be completely wrong. But uh, I, I guess if the if the funds are pinning their ears back and uh, and bidding up the prices of these M and A's and IPOs, I mean, what are they seeing that we're not seeing? Or is it just a matter of the money's got to get out of the bank account and into an asset? Ian, what do you but, think? Uh, I definitely think that's the case, mate. I think uh, you know when funds are playing with other people's money uh, and they've got KPIs and their bonuses, um, you know, based on uh, you know money out the door. I think unfortunately there'll always be. Uh, you know, there'll always be investments that made later on that you'll, you'd think, right, why did we, uh, why did we do that? Um, but that's just reality. Uh, not many funds are prepared to uh, return. Not many funds are prepared to return money to their investors because they can't invest it in a way that it can generate a, a safe, a safe return. Uh, so they take the risk. Marcus, you were going to, you were going to add, add something there. Yeah, look, I think it depends. I mean, uh, you know, good businesses are going to be able to borrow at a much lower rate. Um, and I think uh, the money you're attracting, both debt and or equity, is going to really be uh, a consequence of your business model, uh, a consequence of your management team, and a consequence of your execution capabilities. 
So I think if you're talking to parties around double digit uh, uh, when you're going to borrow, then the reality is they perceive a, a much um, riskier um, uh, return, return uh, basis. It's interesting. I mean, you're sort of saying, I have thought that maybe there's going to be two kinds of, of, of businesses. There'll be the ones that can borrow cheaply and the banks are falling over themselves to lend to those businesses because they're deemed to be safe risks and, and there's not a lot of businesses that are deemed to be safe risks. And then there's going to be the other guys that can't raise money. And I think, you know, I, I have a theory that there's going to be businesses that say, you know what, we survived 2020. Uh, we can't guarantee we're going to survive 2021. Let's try and let's try and find one of these people who've got parcels of money and and sell. Would you agree with that, Marcus? Or? Yeah, look, absolutely. I mean, in, in my some of my analysis, and obviously we're just getting to the mid-year report card, as you know, with reporting season afoot. Um, you know, I discount almost 2020 uh, in some regard and see how were you travelling back uh, through to Christmas uh, 2019, uh, and really tell me was your business already sort of deteriorating. Uh, or was there margin compression or, um, you know, were you really seeking to increase, in which case the pandemic did adversely impact your business? So I, I think you've got a discount to some extent what's happened over the last six or 12 months. All right, listen, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up uh, on a, with, with, with our last uh, article here, which is a bit of a change of pace. How to network in the age of social distancing, uh, an article from the Fin Review, I think it was yesterday. Now, I know all of us, I mean, Marcus, you're a little bit different to me, and Ian, Ian and I are normally just bound by the Pacific on one side and uh, and the Indian Ocean on the other. But you're you're more of a globe trotter than us. But I, I think the same thing, the same question. I mean, we've we, luckily, you know, we've all got one or two grey hairs, and we've we've put in the spade work of building up the relationships face to face over the years, and so we're able to stay in touch with people, you know, whether it's in Perth or Brisbane or London, for that matter. For you know, what what's your advice to people that maybe don't have quite uh, that experience in in building networks in this environment, Ian? Look, I'm a, I'm a massive fan and supporter of LinkedIn. I think um, if you approach uh, LinkedIn in a, in, a, in a sensible, methodical way, um, you know, it is relatively easy to get to people that you may you may have differently in, in almost any other form uh, to make contact with. So over the years, I've generated some really valuable contact through direct approaches on, on LinkedIn. And certainly over the last year, 18 months, um, I've, because I've had so much time early on in particular to be at home, um, we've really focused on, for example, uh, non-bank non -bank lenders and some of those connections have come through LinkedIn. And then once the lockdown's finished, I've been able to sort of strengthen those relationships by one-on-one -on -one meetings or, or Zoom calls or uh, or the like. Uh, we've certainly done, I've done so many Zoom calls over the last... Um, Last four months, it's it's. I, I feel like I'm permanently attached to my computer screen, but it, it, it does work, and and I think people recognise that in these times, that's a, a very effective and efficient way of of communicating and, and developing relationships. Okay, Marcus, what what about yourself? Because obviously, relationships are a big part of your business. Yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, with reference to my globe trotting, I'm assuming you're uh, talking to my Harlem Globetrotters uh, jersey as opposed to my travel. <laughs> Uh, the, the reality of the situation, I, I think, is your networks are really only as valuable as the time you put into them. Uh, I think the um, you know the medium by which um, we use you, know, you can't you have to embrace it. Um, I don't think you can ignore it. Uh, certainly, you know LinkedIn and Twitter are, are important. I think you've got to stay stay on message, stay true to what you do, uh, and the markets that you work in, uh, and I think the relationships that you forged over time, you know, will come through uh, in, in in the full fullness of time. Uh, the takeout um, is that, you know, there's a, there's a new generation coming through, particularly, you know, 20, 30-somethings who are working in, uh, in the fintech space, uh, as an example. 
And I think, you know, that business is being done a little bit differently, but relationships are still important. You have to invest in them if you want to see some reward. Yeah, interesting. I mean, the other thing that I would recommend to people to invest in is invest, you know, get a decent microphone, spend a couple hundred bucks, get a decent camera, uh, maybe get a light. I've got a light. I look terrible without the light myself. Um, Ian's always an oil painting, of course. But, uh, you know, they, you know you, you, you're know, spending a lot of time on Zoom. It always amazes me that, um, you know, some people just, they, they, you know, they don't sound, they've got the, the wrong sound. And it's just spend a few dollars you're presenting yourself, particularly in the world we live in. You know, we're normally talking about reasonable size uh, uh, tickets, and uh, I think I think that's worthwhile. Okay, look, we're going to uh, wrap it up there. I will ask you just just for any closing thoughts. Uh, I'll start with you, Ian. Look, um, I, I think we're going to have a, a pretty positive year this year. I, I think um, we're going to see a continuing uh, reduction in unemployment. I think we're going to see continuing investment. Um, I don't think that the, our borders going to open for a long time. Uh, certainly not this year, and possibly not even next year. But I think as Australians, we're going to learn how to trade with ourselves and uh, and do more here. And I think in the long term, having regard to some of the uh, issues surrounding um, you know, our friends in, in Asia, um, uh, we're going to need to become more uh, reliant on ourselves and, and less reliant uh, on, on others. So hopefully this is an opportunity for us to, to really move forward in, in becoming self-reliant. Okay, so there's an upbeat Ian Hyman. Marcus, what about yourself? Yeah, look, I, I share, you know, Ian's, um, you know, op optimism. I, I think the reality is we're, we're learning. Uh, we're fast learners in Australia. Uh, I'd like to see a lot of this capital uh, that uh, there's, you know, sloshing around uh, be reinvested uh, across sectors, not just into sectors that uh, they think will be a, a short-term win. I'd like to sort of see some more medium, longer-term investment, um, you know, and whether that's a, a rail link uh, up the East Coast and whether we create satellite cities and whether we put manufacturing hubs in there, uh, smart manufacturing. I, I'd like to see some long-term planning uh, come to the fore during 21. Uh, and I think there will be some pain, but that pain probably will be the back end of the year. Um, you know, we, we can't sort of uh, pretend it's not going to happen, uh, but we do need to embrace it. And I think Australians are very resilient. Marcus Dale, and fantastic for your first-time appearance on Lunch Money. Thank you very much for making the time. And thank you very much, Ian Hyman, for coming back again. And thank you to all our viewers and all of our listeners. Uh, thank you. And we'll see you again. Cheers.